Wrestling fans, Roy Lusher here with another exciting episode of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lusher. My guest this week really needs no introduction, for he is a member of one of the most famous families in wrestling history, the Malenko family. He was trained by the man that we know as the godfather of pro wrestling in Japan, Carl Gotch. Uh, He comes to us and tells us about his amazing stories of his days in all Japan, Uh, Mexico, um, Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, the original UWF, and so much more here. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is none other than Joe Malenko. And without further ado, I'd love to get straight to this interview, everybody. Here we go with my interview with Joe Malenko. Hey, wrestling fans, this is Roy Lusher here with Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lusher, and I have a special treat for you today. I have on here right now one of the most legendary figures ever. Uh, he is the son of Boris Malenko. He made a great career over in Japan over in the years, working for many different companies, but especially in all Japan. I have on the line right now Mr. Joe Malenko. Uh, Mr. Malenko, how are you doing today? Hey, Roy, doing okay. It, it is, um, it's, it's Joe or Jody. Joe or Jody. Okay, got it. <laughs> so, Joe, tell us about growing up Malenko. What was it like to be in the household of the legendary Boris Malenko and to be around him as a father and in the business? Hey, look, it was, you know, like everything else growing up as a kid, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, being being in the wrestling business is a tough business. It's hard on a family. And so when your dad's a professional wrestler, at least for the first few years, you're traveling a lot, but he's always on the road even when you're traveling with him. And then later on, when you settle in because he wants to get settled down in some area of the country, and he did here in Tampa, you know, then he goes on the road, so you don't see him much. You know, what sucked as a kid, I, I – I always knew my dad was out there trying to make a buck for us and you know, trying to do what he can to provide well for us. But in the same breath, it would have been nice to have him around a little bit more. That was just uh, that was the nature of the business. Hard on hard on marriages, hard on families. That's why so many guys in the business have been married more times than years they've been in the business in some cases. Yeah. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your own career? And about the godfather of pro wrestling in Japan, Carl Gotch. How was it like to train underneath him? And how was he away from the ring? So, okay, so you just asked a, you just asked a whole bunch of stuff in one shot. Uh, <laughs> my, my career. So I had a, I sort of had an abbreviated career by, by choice. Unlike a lot of guys in the business, I'm one of those guys who had the opportunity to use the business to, you know, get around a little bit and make a few bucks. Make a, you know, make a little bit of a name for myself in different places. Obviously, I played off with the Malenko name, which my dad, set, you know, set in stone here in Florida and in other parts of the country. Then, um, you know, then that's what I did. I mean, I went to pharmacy school. I got a good degree behind me, and I worked other jobs trying to make a living and did a whole bunch of different things. But always had, always had professional wrestling in the background that I did, and especially in Japan, where I just, you know, I, I love to go over there. I love to go over there for a number of reasons. Japan was my mainstay, mainly because you knew the caliber of the people that you were, you were going to be working against. 
and it was always top-notch. You got to work against the best of the best here in the States because everybody was going over to Japan. The reason everybody went over there is because they treated you great. You knew that when you, you know, you knew that when you went to a show and you were going to get paid X amount of dollars for a week, that you were going to see those dollars. I, you know, I always, I always had to laugh because after the, after every single tour, you know, they would come to you and they'd pay you, and the guys would hand you the money and they'd look at you, kind of expecting you to count it. And I never, ever once counted my money. Wow. I knew because I knew I didn't have to. And I and I didn't and I didn't even count it. I didn't even wait until they left the room to count it. I just didn't bother with it until I got back into the states. Um, nice. You just didn't have to worry about it. As opposed to here in the United States, where you know there was a there was an old saying back in the day: "There's only two kind of promoters, bad and worse." And <laughs> and so if you were going to get stiffed by anybody in the world, uh, you were going to get stiffed by wrestling promoters. You know that's a that's a gross generalization. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of guys who have done real well in this business and not been stiff, but you know the the rule of thumb in the day was if there was a way to tell you the house was less than it was, they were going to do it. Even my own father stiffed me on numerous occasions, <laughs> but but I loved him, but I loved him, so he got away with it. <laughs> now, early on in your career, you actually took Carl's name and wrestled in Mexico for UWA under the name Carl Gotch Jr. What do you yeah. remember about those matches? Um, they were not that great. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a bit of a fish out of water. So I, you know, I had wrestled a little bit here in the states, and obviously I grew up in the business. But it was, you know, the luchador, uh, lucha libre style was different for me. It was, um, you know, it, it was it was what it was, and it wasn't my style. And so when I went down there, I did the best I could. And, um, I, had, I had a little bit of. Yeah, a little bit of issue fitting in, coming to terms with the style, but again, did the best I could. I had a good time down there. The guys, I mean, everybody and everybody who was working for Flores at the time, they really took care of me. Um, the dad of Brasso de Oro, um, his name was Charito. I don't remember what he went by in the ring, but he was sort of like my, you know, my right hand guy, and he just he saw me around Mexico City. I lived there for about four months. And and they treated me awesome. They treated me awesome because they were just good people. And then I was there with Carl's name. It wasn't only until years later that I had a that I had a magazine. So I was playing saxophone a little bit. I wasn't good at all. But I brought my sax down there just to kind of play. And uh, so I had a magazine where somebody playing saxophone. And then Carl was behind me. And it was all in Spanish. And my Spanish is um, almost non-existent. <laughs> so it wasn't that long ago, maybe a couple of years back, I had a buddy of mine who's from Venezuela. I said, hey, uh, take a look at this. I, I never did find out what they said. And he kind of looks at it, and he, you can see on his face that he didn't want to tell me. I'm like, what? He goes, well, you know, they, they sort of said you didn't live up to, your ex, to expectations. I said, no, no, they, they were right. You know, I'm not, I, it, was, uh, it was a difficult time. Before I went there, I was up in the Carolinas. I was refereeing, and I wrestled a few times, not much. And um, there was a guy by the name of, um, oh, come on, he was from New Zealand, Abe Jacobs. Uh-huh. And Abe worked with me in the ring a little bit. And, you know, my dad obviously had worked with me, and I've worked, I've worked with a lot of different guys. Abe kind of helped me hone my skills a little bit. But then again, you go to Mexico, and it's so different. Just, I mean, the way you take, the way you take different things, guys coming off the ropes is just, you know, it's a world of different stuff. Plus the locking, the locking up is left to right. It's like a completely one eighty. Yeah, yeah, it throws you all off. Yeah, 
Now, how did you get involved in working the early UWF back in 84, and how did you come into the name you used there, Joe Solkoff? That was a, that was a Carl. That was a gosh thing. I mean, Carl was a guy who, so it was, a, it was an honor. When Carl got me booked in Japan with Flores, he looked at me and he said, hey, if you want, um, why don't you go there as my son? And I went, holy crap, that's pretty good. I had already trained with him for, you know, a few years at the time. So I I felt pretty confident on the mat, not necessarily in a in a ring wrestling Lucha Libre style. Mm-hmm. But you know, for him to say that, that was that was an honor. And then, then when he started working on Japan on the uh, UWF with, um, you know, Osama, uh, yeah, Ayamara, Fujiwara and all those guys, he asked me if I wanted to go, and he made that happen. And then he's the one who gave me the name. Oh, okay, gotcha. Who are some of your favorite opponents to work with back in that original UWF? Oh man, there was there were so many. I loved working with Sayama. I loved working with Fujiwara. I, I you know, I, there was a um, uh, God. I'm trying to remember the kid's name. Lanky kid. I'm a, it wasn't Kawasaki because that would have made him a motorcycle. Um, <laughs> Kazuo Yamazaki. Maybe it was Yamazaki. Maybe that's yeah. who it was. Yeah. Um, excellent. Uh, there was just again. You know, it goes back to what I said about Japan. Whenever you went to Japan, you just you just worked against guys who were stellar, um, worked hard, did everything they needed to do each and every night to you know to make it easy on you, pretty much. Although I, you know, although I took some good <laughs> took some good kicks. <laughs> now, you and Dean first came to work for All Japan in 1988. How did the both of you come into contact with the company? Um, through Lord Blair's. Again, it was a, uh, it was, it was part of my dad and Carl was, you know, Carl was involved as well. And we went through Lord Blair's in Hawaii at the time. He, he got his book. And then we continued to do that for a while until pretty much we were on the roster. Um, not whenever we wanted to, but, you know, we, we had, we had the ability to say that we wanted to be there quite a bit. And Bob and crew just kind of made it happen. Nice. Were you aware of most of the guys who were there before your first tour? Most of the guys who were there before my first tour. Like like the Misawas and Kawadas and, and no. the Fushis? Nope, not at all. I had I had no clue who any of them were. And then, um, obviously, as I keep saying over and over again, I was pleasantly surprised. I just, you know, there wasn't anybody that I climbed in the ring with where I went, oh, he stunk. Uh, if anything, they, if anything, they might have walked away going, I stunk, but they, I didn't walk away going, they stunk. They were, you know, some of these guys were just awesome. When the both of you were, were brought in, were you told ahead of time you would be mostly a tag wrestler or there would be a mix of tag and singles? Uh, we were brought in pretty much knowing that we were going to be a tag team. Hmm. Now, what did you think about Giant Baba as a person, both inside and out of the ring? I didn't know him. Um you know, I just, I mean, my experience with him was limited at best. I you know, I would see him around, and, he, you know, he was, he was always cordial with me, but it wasn't like we were best best friends or anything. He treated me, he treated me well. He treated me with respect. You know, obviously, I gave respect back in turn because he was pretty highly respected. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I always tell the story that, well, two things that, two things that were my claim to fame in Japan. One was that he actually pulled a rib on me. I told this number of times about a hat that I asked for, and he charged me a couple hundred bucks for the hat. And then as I walked away, he was laughing, and he really wasn't going to charge me, but he was 
actually was driven me. And then the uh, the second thing was I left my briefcase. I left one of my one of my suitcases in the hotel, and the Japanese team had to pick it up. And Baba actually carried my suitcase. He had to carry it personally. So I'm one of the few guys who can say Baba carried his case for him, and he ripped me. But wow. That's about it. <laughs> But he was always good to deal with. I mean, when we went back, you know, as we as we progressed there, and I would go and you know talk to him about renegotiating what we were making and how we were being used and stuff. Um, he was always easy to deal with. I, I, but of course, I'm I was always pretty easy to deal with. I, I I left my I left my ego at the door before I even opened the door. <laughs> and what do you remember most about the matches you and Dean had with uh, the British Bulldogs? Awesome. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I keep, I'm going to keep saying the same thing over and over again. I, I just, you know, they were another tag team that just had, uh, they had a great, you know, they had a great presence in the ring. The the thing about, the thing about our match, our match was we were so different um, for us to be able to kind of blend our styles together and, and for it to work. That was, that was, you know, it was an interesting night. Now, what do you remember? You've won the All Japan Junior title twice in your career. What do you remember mo- most about that night where you won the junior title the first time against Masafushi? Okay, so I'm going to get – this is one of my stickler things. Nobody wins anything. You don't mm-hmm. win the title. Somebody comes up to you and they say, hey um, – I use that word a lot. Hey, somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, you want to you know, you want to take this match and have the belt for a little while? And you go, yeah. Or you go, no, I'm going to leave the territory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not it's not like you go in there and win anything. It always it always strikes me as funny again, this is my soapbox stuff. It always I strikes understand. me as funny when people start to really believe that they won. You know, that they truly were a champion. I mean, yeah, you you know, look, if if you're given a belt, it means obviously that you had something that somebody likes and they want to see you have something as a reward for it, but they also are looking to bring crowds in. So they're looking to play off of whatever you bring to the table, and that's why they give you a belt. But again, they give you a belt. You you don't you don't win anything. Uh, most of the guys that they had to really win their belts, they probably would have never had belts. Understand very much. Yeah, you had many incredible matches in your career with Fushi. What do you remember about those matches, and what's the key to success to working with someone like him? I think the key to success in the ring period is that you just you learn to you know you learn to do a couple things. One is you learn to give your body to somebody and trust them, and then you learn that when you're entrusted with somebody's body that you take care of it, and you're you know and you're cautious about it. And then it's also how you play out a match based on you know good ring psychology. And doing that in a way in which you don't interfere with the style of whoever you're in there with. But if you if you're if you're competent in the ring and you're comfortable on the mat in the ring, you're going to be okay with anybody. I, you know, it's, again, these are stories that I tell all the time. The same things that I tell all the time because that's what happens by the time you're you know you're in your fifties and sixties. You keep repeating yourself. Um, the old you know it's that old adage about being able to work with a broomstick. Mm-hmm. If you go into the ring and you're and you're a competent guy and you're comfortable with how you you know how you work a match and you're in there and you're protecting the guy you're with and you're giving him what he needs to get, you're just gonna have a good match. It just it just usually works. 
On rare occasion, it doesn't. I mean, I had. I remember being in Australia, and I got in the I got in the ring. Chris Benoit and myself, and uh, we both got out afterwards. And we looked at each other, and eh, that was not great. <laughs> <laughs> and you would and you would have expected you would have expected Benoit and I to have had a decent match, but we both, you know, we both just didn't gel real well that night, and that happened. But but we didn't hurt each other, so that's a good thing. You know, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's probably the most important thing that I see nowadays. It just drives me nuts is people, you know, people doing these things that they either put themselves at great risk, and the chance that they cut their career career very short is is too much, or they're putting another guy at risk. They're just not protecting the guy that they're in there with. And again, no reason for that. This is you know, this is supposed to be a career. It's not supposed to be a one night throw everything you got at a guy and then call it quits because you end up being you know, paralyzed from the neck down. Now, one of your one of the most memorable things during your career in Old Japan was your title defense against uh, your own brother, Dean Malenko. Uh, what do you remember most about that night where you uh, defended the title against Dean? Uh, I, mean, I remember thinking to myself that that Baba, you know, that Baba was a pretty, was a pretty smart guy. It created some buzz. You know, we you know you got to keep in mind our place in Japan. So we were, we were we were mid tier players, um, and I and I you know I always knew that. So for him to you know for him to figure out ways to use us and again you know, draw crowds and make money and you know put us with the right people at the right time. That, that, there's a talent to that, and I think you know I think he showed that and that. In that moment where he said, "Huh, you know, maybe we'll put brother versus brother. Their styles are very similar. They should have a decent match." And you know, you don't see the brother versus brother thing very often. Although it's been done, it's been done multiple times, but you don't see it all the time. Now, All Japan in the early '90s was known for bringing in a lot of random foreigners, like Ken Shamrock, David Sammartino, Eric Embry, Richard Sherlin. Are there any foreigners that you wish the company had brought in that they didn't? No, <laughs> I mean, no, not really. I, I, I got a chance to be overseas with pretty much everybody who was anybody at some point. You know, guys from, you know, guys from WWE and guys from, you know, Rude, Rick, Rick was on our tour. We did, we did joint deals at, at the Tokyo Dome with WWE. Um, I mean, there was there weren't too many guys that were over here that were worth anything that didn't make their way to Japan at some point, and I either had a chance to be on a bus with them, or you know, or wrestle against them, or at least be in the same auditorium with them and get to know them. Although, I, you know, again, growing up in the business, you know pretty much everybody at some point. Yeah. So there's nobody now, there's nobody that I, there's nobody that I ever said, boy, I wish I had had a chance to work against that I that I didn't get a chance to work against. Now, there are some guys that I had a chance to work against that I would have liked to have had more ring time with. And, you know, Dynamite's one of those guys. I just, I always had, I always had this special place in my heart for Tom because as, as much as you'll hear about him from different people and some of it's not the greatest stuff that, you know, that puts him on any kind of pedestal. If anything, it buries him under the pedestal. He, um, you know, he always treated me very well. And we sort of, you know, we I guess I guess we sort of had a mutual admiration, so it it worked it worked well. I just like I just like being in the ring with a guy who's got the intensity that he has. You know, ben Benoit was another guy like that. I mean, he was a I don't want to say he was a dynamite clone because that that makes light of who he was, but you know he was 
he was a lot. He was he was cut from the same. He was cut from the same fabric. Um, would you happen to know why you and Dean never worked the uh, the tag league tournaments in November December? I think part of it is we were you know we were just small guys. You know they I mean face the fact that this was a big man's game much more in years gone by than it is now, although it still is um, to some degree, not as much though. So yeah. We, yeah, when we were over there, that's part of the reason we were made by guys because we were smaller guys. In fact, we get on you know, one of these stories I tell all the time. You know, we get on the bus and Stan, who became one of my best friends over there, uh, Stan be at the front of the bus. I would sit like five or six rows behind him. My brother would be pretty much right behind Stan. And as we get on the bus, Stan would go da 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 da, like you know, like we were a little circus midgets or something. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and 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 uh, Doug Furness, who I became very good friends with, Doug, uh, Doug called me Sky Lolo one time. Wow. And I didn't take it, you know, I didn't take it bad. I thought, okay, so if you're going to call me Sky Lolo, that's fine. Well, eventually Sky Lolo just became Sky. And so for most of the rest of his life, whenever Doug would talk to me, he would Call me Scott. I mean, he would call. So I'd be working pharmacy, and Doug would call, and he'd get the front counter, and they'd say, "Hey, I got some guy. I got some guy at the front. He's asking for a Sky. Sky Lolo." And I get Doug. You know, <laughs> now, did you have a preference working singles or tags? Um, no, not really. And I just, I just, I just like to. I just like to work. I like to be in the ring. I, you know, I, I realize my limitations now at my age, but back then, yeah, I just, I, you know, I thought I was bulletproof like a lot of younger guys, and I just like to be in the ring because, regardless of whether or not you're in there as a singles guy or you're in there doubles or you're in there in some kind of crazy, you know, ten man DQ sort of deal, um, when when it's right and the crowd is hot. And everything's going the way it's supposed to go, man. There's nothing better in the world. I mean, there may be, there's a lot, but there's a lot of things better than that. You know, having 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 kids is better. You know, obviously a lot of things better than professional wrestling. But for that moment, it's just it's pretty amazing. You know, when you're when you're in a when you're in a place and you got seventy thousand people and they start chanting, um, and you can barely hear yourself think. It's a it's a heady deal. Wow, yeah. Uh, speaking of large crowds, what was the atmosphere like working that Tokyo Dome show where Bob and Vince uh, worked together and had the uh, all those interpromotional matches going? The Dome was always a great place to work, but yeah, I, I didn't. I mean, there were more there were more intimate venues that I liked. I mean, Corkin Hall is famous, um, and it's small, but it's famous. I mean, that's where. You know, that's where I've had some of the best stuff I've ever been involved in with, you know, with the Bulldogs, with Terry and Doc. And, I mean, just, you know, just awesome matches in a small little place. But the the atmosphere, you just can't beat it. You can't, you can't, you can't look at the dome and get that same kind of atmosphere that you get in, these, in some of these smaller venues. The Budokan was another place. I mean, we... And I've wrestled some matches there. We've rocked that place. You just don't do the same thing at the dome. It's just too big. It's too, you know, it's too, um, you're too disconnected from the crowd. I had a uh, Kurt Meyer on uh, about a month or so ago, and 
he was telling me about his dad's final match at, at Budokan, and he was saying, you know, similar to the same thing. It's like it could have sold out the Tokyo Dome, but it wouldn't have been as personal because of how personal a building Budokan was. So I totally understand what you mean. And when you were there, and when you were there in the seats in that place, it's almost like they go straight up. I mean, I'm, I don't know how high that place is, but you would look up and you go, holy crap. And even though the even though the um, the dome is obviously a much bigger venue, three four times bigger, there's something about the Budokan that when you're there in that ring and you look up at the seats, the seats just seem to go up into the sky. It's uh, it's amazing. And then I always remember the album Cheap Trick live at the Budokan. So I always thought it was kind of special that I was there. Now you teamed a lot with Kenta Kobashi as well during this era, even challenging for the uh, All-Asia Tag Titles. What comes to mind when you think of Kobashi as a wrestler and as a person? Uh, you know, in the, early, in the early days, in the early days when he was a young boy, um, and when I say young boy, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, you know, that everybody's a young boy in Japan when you're starting out, even if you're not a young boy. Um, obviously, he, you know, obviously, he was a typical young boy, so, you know, he's going to, He's going to watch Balba's back, and he's going to run for stuff, and he's going to do what he needs to do, and he's going to be attentive and, you know, very respectful. Um, and so he was always that as he was making his way to the stardom that he eventually got. I, I kind of lost track of him once he got past a certain level. There was a point, though, there was a point, though, where I saw a change in him, and, um, I don't mean this in a mean way. It's just, you know, he sort of came into his own. I, there was a there was a time where he was in the ring with a couple of the young guys at one of the matches, and it was before the crowd got in. And he was he was really abusing the crap out of the kids, and that that was typical of the Jap. You know, that was typical of a lot of the guys in the business, or you know, not just the Japanese, where they would get younger guys in the business. They would be the kid they'd be. Just, and I, I didn't agree with that. I just that wasn't my style. I mean, I you know, I, I could hold my own in the ring, but. I didn't have to beat the crap out of you. I could, you know, if I could handle you, I'd handle you, and you would know it, and that was good enough. So I mentioned something to him, and he looked at me, and he goes, uh, you're in Japan. And I went, okay, I got you. And that was kind of, you know, that was kind of when I realized that he had changed. Um, and, again, don't take it wrong. It's not that, you know, I'm not saying that he became an asshole. I'm not saying that he, you know, started to believe his own hype or anything. It was, it was literally, you could see that he was coming into his own, and at that point, he wasn't, he wasn't the student any longer. He was Kenta Kobashi, and he was going to let me know that this fan, this is the way we do things. If you don't like it, you know, there's other territories, I guess. Have fun. Now, how come in March of 92, your, your, that was your final tour of all Japan? Was that around the time where you were starting to think about being a, a pharmacist? No, I was a pharm I was a pharmacist from '83 on. I graduated pharmacy school in '83 and became a pharmacist in '83. So, oh, I, okay, got I, it. I was, yeah, I was always in pharmacy, and I okay. was doing a bunch of I was, you know, again, I've, I've been, I've been pretty lucky and blessed because there's only one word that makes sense, and it is blessed. I've been blessed to do a lot of different things. So, I've always done a lot of different things besides wrestling. And as I said earlier on, wrestling for me was was a means to an end. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't my livelihood. It was I wasn't like my brother. My brother, you know, my brother knew that he wanted to be a professional wrestler. That's all he, that's all he lived for, breathed for. That's all he worked for. He wasn't even going to really get a good job until he got into the business. He just, he was going to wait for the business. Thank God he got a break. 
and he got a break because he was good, obviously. Yeah. You know, but um, I wasn't like that. I I knew that I could I knew that I could go on tours and I could you know wrestle a match here and there and I could have decent matches and I could make a few bucks. I could you know still tippets with the guys and have the camaraderie of the boys and and not do it full time and not be you know not be sucked into a lifestyle that was kind of tough. Um, even though I had my own, <laughs> even though I had my own issues with my lifestyle, I I never, I didn't let I didn't let wrestling take over me. Yeah. So many other things. Yeah. Now you stopped working all Japan at that time. You started working for Fujiwara's Strong Style Group over there, including a match against a very young Minoru Suzuki. Any memories about working at at that time? Um. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of memories. I, I you know, Shamrock was part of my. Shamrock was part of the uh, dojo at the time. In fact, Shamrock had come and worked at uh, Baba's group with us. We were in Okinawa. He was my tag team partner. Um, actually, he was my tag team partner on that tour. Uh, and some of the worst matches I ever had <laughs> were were <laughs> me, were me and uh, Shamrock. Joel Deaton, Joel Deaton to this day. Well, before before uh, before Doug died, Doug would always remind me of the worst tag match he ever saw. And it was the match between myself, Ken Shamrock versus Joel Deaton and Dick Slater. And so if you think about the four guys that are in that ring and you think, why would that be a bad match? You can come to your own conclusions. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what would you say is the biggest difference between working for companies like uh, UWF and Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi and then working for companies like All Japan and New Japan? All of it uh, again. You're, you're you're stating the obvious with by asking a question. You're you know, they you know the larger companies had the wherewithal to do you know to be able to take better care of you. You were put up in nicer places. You were transported in nicer ways. You were just you, know, you were seen to and dealt with and you know on a, but on a much better scale. The the you know the houses were bigger. Um, yeah, everything. The, the, the bigger promotions were just big promotions, and they were easy to deal with, and they paid you better. Now, a lot of people say that you and Fujiwara were the two best students that Carl Gotch ever trained. What do you think about that statement, and do you still talk to Fujiwara nowadays? I saw him. I brought Carl's ashes, uh, some of his ashes I brought to Japan for them to be interred in the cemetery there about three or four months ago now, I guess. Um, it was the It was the 10th anniversary of Carl's death. And I mm-hmm. thought Fuji was there. It was pretty emotional between him and I. We have a, again, we have a long history, a great respect for one another. It was, I, I thought we were going to end up, you know, crying in each other's arms because it's a lot of, a lot of history. Do, you know, as far as, as far as who's, who's best and who was Carl's best students and who was this and who was that. I don't, I don't play those games. I mean, I, I um. You know, I felt I felt confident on a mat doing submission style wrestling. Fujiwara obviously felt very confident on a mat doing submission style wrestling. You know that was that was our thing. I spent, I mean, sheer time with Carl. I spent more time with Carl Gotch than anybody ever did. I was with mm-hmm. him. I was with him pretty much every day for seven years. Um, even even when I was at the end of my high school career and I started dating a little bit, Carl would look at me and go, "You know, what are you doing?" Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a young guy. I'm supposed to date. He goes, no, you're really not. <laughs> you're supposed to wrestle. 
It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll give up girls for you. As long as that don't send me on a different path. <laughs> <laughs> now, you helped out, obviously, a lot at the Michael Gym, training uh, some amazing talent like Mark Marrow, Sean Waltman, and many others. What's your advice to anyone who's thinking about becoming a pro wrestler nowadays? I, mean, I think my advice has been the same and would continue to be the same no matter how the business changes. One is, you know, part of my advice is, if you're looking to get a door opened up for you, you're probably you probably stand a snowball chance in hell, but if you know that and you go in with that expectation and and that's clearly defined for you, then you're okay. So you know it's 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 what I used to tell people who came into the school. I would almost I would almost have a conversation. You know, I would do the disclaimer conversation with people to the point where I would almost tell them that they were nuts doing this because what I want what I wanted to make sure that everybody understood was that somewhere down the road months later when they had you know put everything they had into it and they were looking around and nobody was calling that they couldn't look at me and say yeah but you promised that i'd get in the business or you promised that i'd be this or a superstar and i could turn back to them and go no i actually i told you not to do it <laughs> so but you know we were pretty lucky to be able to bring some guys along that became talented hands and they did okay and the amazing thing to me is the breadth and depth of people and the influence of those people that we have had a hand in. Um, there was a guy who was started to do a book. Scott Teal is doing one now. But there was a guy who started doing a book, and he did a, he did a uh, sort of a Gantt chart showing all the different people that we affected and the people that we trained and the people that they trained. And he sent it to me, and I looked, and I went, holy <laughs> I, I mean, I forgot. You know, there are guys that I forget. You know, Barry Horowitz. I mean, um, th there are guys. There are so many guys that came through that I forgot about that ended up being great hands and they had good careers. You know, maybe they. You know, I mean, you know, did we train a Hulk Hogan? Did we train? You know, did we train a Randy Savage? No, but we trained a lot of we trained a lot of guys who ended up having careers and just have a career in the business to be able to say that you you're a real professional that's not take nothing away from the indie guys look some of these guys are talented guys in their own right but you know if you tell me that you wrestle professionally and you know you get out in a crowd of 60 people every two weeks or three weeks or every two months you're not a professional wrestler you know, yeah you, you dabble in professional wrestling I, you, if, if you knew how many people I've had come up to me in my lifetime and say, yeah, my cousin used to wrestle. And I'm like, who's your cousin? Oh, well, you know, he was a mass destroyer in uh, without loot. I'm like, okay, mass. So he's one of 973 mass destroyers, and he's in loot. They don't really have big venues in loot, and I don't think the WWE runs in loot, Florida. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, again, not to knock. You know, look, if you get out there and you have a good time in the ring, and even if you get paid 25 bucks and you're in front of 20 people, knock yourself out. But I'll stop there. Now, earlier this decade, you were actually asked by All Japan to return to team with uh, Osamu Nishimura in the 2010 Real World Tag League. How did that event all come about? Uh, Osamu and I wrestled a little bit here in Florida for a few matches as, as you know as things went through here in the state and. You know, he got to know me. I knew him. He knew Carl real well. So, 
you know, when the time came, he just gave me a call and said, hey, you interested in getting back in the ring? And I said, yeah, I guess. Let's, we'll see. Um, I was actually, I actually was having some neck problems at the time. So when I went over there, I was a little bit hesitant to do much. In fact, uh, one of the guys wrapped a towel around me and threw me over the top ropes and almost hung me. And when he did that, you know, my neck popped and I felt my whole body go numb from the neck down. I thought, I thought it was going to be a freaking paraplegic. Um, and then I kind of said, man, maybe I'll never get in the ring again. Of course, I've climbed the ring a couple more times. But I'm, I'm very cautious when I get in now. I, I don't, you know, I, I, realize, I realize my place at a certain age and what I'm capable of doing, even though my head thinks different. I'm, you know, there's another head that, you know, there's an even deeper brain that says, no, you're not 20. So, <laughs> so I went over there that time kind of knowing that I was going to be limited. I, I thought I had some decent matches. I mean, it came off okay. I had some people say that they were surprised that I, you know, still moved around okay. Now, you're still very active in the scene in the Tampa area, especially fundraising community there. Uh, for local causes. What are some of the things you've been involved with there the past few years? I mean, my, you know, my, uh, my efforts have been to kind of help with the remembrance of championship wrestling from Florida from the old days. Uh, and when I say that, I mean the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. That's when I grew up. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the community of wrestling was so important to the community of Tampa that, um, you know, it's, it's sort of incumbent upon me to make sure that everybody remembers as best as I can help that happen. And and part of it, obviously, is in due to fact, you know, is, is in fact due to you know, my dad being who he was and pretty important in Florida wrestling. I want to, I'd like to keep his memory alive, even if it's just for my own selfish needs. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then there was this venue here in Tampa, which is Fort Homer Hesley Armory. It's been has been revived and rejuvenated by the Jewish Community Center. Brian Glazer of the Bucks uh, is now the namesake of, or it's the namesake of Brian Glazer, Brian Glazer, Jason C. And so, you know, part of my efforts has been to make sure that people understand the importance of that building when it was the house that wrestling was in every Tuesday night here in Tampa. So I, you know, I focus in, I focus in on championship wrestling in Florida, the guys who were big in the day, and and on this and on this building that was the arguably or inarguably the Madison Square Garden of the South is what they used to call it. <laughs> now, any upcoming events that you're a part of that you wish to tell us about? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no upcoming event. Well, as I say that, uh, I am helping a documentary film producer who is working on a a documentary. And it may actually be a docu-series based on how this ends up being sold. But you know, he's been involved in interviewing a lot of guys. He's got about 50 interviews of all the different people who came through here and people who were associated and some fans. And you know, there's a lot of archival footage of what went on here in Tampa and then also throughout the rest of Florida. So with all of that material, all of that content, uh, we're, you know, we're kind of I'm, – I'm pitching in a little bit to help her with uh, you know, bringing a documentary about uh, with all that content and maybe helping her to sell it to, to uh, out in L.A. Nice. Uh, anything you want to say about an old friend of both of ours, the man with the best punch in the business, Bob Cook? Yeah, Bob, look, Bob was one of those, Bob was one of those guys that, 
you know, you, I mean, there were a number, of, there were a number of terms for guys like Bob. None of them, none of them good. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, Bob, Bob was, Bob was a journeyman. You know, Bob was a carpenter. And he was, you know, he was that, he was that glue that held matches together. Even if the guy that he was going against was going to go over that night, he, you know, he was just a solid hand. There were a lot of. You know, there were a lot of guys like that through the years that didn't receive, you know, they didn't receive the John paycheck. Uh, you know, I got Rick Flair's paycheck by mistake one time in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, needless to say, he was making a hell of a lot more than I was making. <laughs> you know, but was he working any harder? Um, no, he was just, you know, he was who he was. He was playing boy, and he had something special at the time, and that something special, you know, transported him to a new level and kept him there the rest of his life. You know, Bob... Bob didn't have that, but Bob had just good, solid ring skills and good timing. And you know, the, what what makes somebody great for me is somebody who looks like they take your head off, and you and you have to double check and make sure that they just did something because they're so easy to deal with. You know, it's not it's not like today where even even the slaps. I mean, even even the guys who slap, you know, the the Ric Flair's and the Wild McDaniel's and stuff. I I didn't even buy that. I mean, to me, it's more, you know, my dad, my dad could, you know, my dad could make it look like he was tearing you apart, and you had to double check and make sure he was still standing in the ring with you. Mm-hmm. And and to, and to, that's, I mean, that's that's the journeyman. That's a guy, you know, that's a guy who knows his shit. And then of course you throw into that somebody who has good timing, and now you got the great, you know, you got a great mixture. Maybe you didn't, you know, maybe Bob wasn't that guy who had that X factor, you know, that it's that something that was going to propel him to the top. Obviously he didn't, but what a good solid hand. And, and he's one of the. I mean, look, um, the guy I just mentioned, who I always, who I always forget, uh, Barry Harwood. Uh-huh. Another guy. You know, just another another good solid journeyman. I mean, you know, he, his uh, his claim to fame was, you know, one of the longer one of the longest losing streaks, I think, for a long. You know, I forgot what it was back here in Florida. Um, yeah, back when he was Jack Hart, was yeah. Yeah, that was probably the only thing that he was famous for. But man, what a again, he could get in the ring, work with anybody, good solid hand, everything he did looked looked legit. And at the end of the night, you all went home and you didn't have to go get stitched up or you know have surgery next week. Now. Um, Joe, I can't thank you enough for your time today on the show. Any final words out there for the listeners who have been following your career the past few decades? Um, no. What's <laughs> <laughs> that time to look? You know, if, if somebody if somebody receives any enjoyment from watching me in the ring or anybody else that I ever dealt with, um, that's, that's you know that's 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 in and of itself enough. Um, and I and I I've had I've had plenty of I've had plenty of that come my way. So again, you know, my goal, if I have any goal when I do these things, is to kind of keep, you know, maybe maybe I keep a few people grounded. Maybe some people who are in the business, I you know, I say something where they go, oh yeah, maybe I'm not as hot as I thought I was, and I need to just be concerned about my work. Um, and for guys who follow it, just to, you know, just to maybe let them know that we're we're people. Um, I think. Yeah, I think. I think the one thing that I attempt to do is add a add the personal side to a lot of this that people don't do 
in these interviews, and, and we really didn't have a chance to do much of that. I mean, again, I I try and talk more about my dad as opposed to talking about Boris Malenko. You know, uh, guys, mm-hmm. guys like Bob Cook and their struggle with Mountain Dew as opposed to talking about how good they are in the ring. Um, anyway, I'm rambling on. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your evening, sir. Okay, appreciate it. Thank you.
Hey, it's Jeff Cobb, and you're listening to Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lusher. Aloha. There you have it, wrestling fans. Um, there's my interview with Joe Malenko. And speaking as a fan, first of all, I must say that part of me is like screaming inside, like, I can't believe it. I just interviewed Joe Malenko, to be honest with you. There's that mark in me that's like, damn, I seriously, that was like really, you know. <laughs> Um, I just want to thank uh, Joel Deaton and Bob Cook, who I had been talking to, who told me that, you know, definitely Joe had no problem doing this. All I had to do was message him, and lo and behold, uh, Joe, when I contacted him, uh, agreed immediately to do it. In fact, he did it sooner than I even was planning on doing it. So thank you so much, Joe, if you're listening, for agreeing to do the show. Um, I'd also like to thank Jeff Cobb for his uh, introduction that he did earlier. Um, he's got an amazing clothing line on Pro Wrestling Tees. In fact, he was just out there for the uh, opening, the grand opening of that store in Chicago. He was out there with, uh, got a bunch of the guys. I saw the photos of it and stuff. And I saw him uh, yesterday at the uh, SPW show. And he's also sponsored by Suplex as well, their clothing line. So check both of them out at uh, Pro Wrestling Tees and Suplex. Um, personally, by the way, uh, if you're looking for amazing apparel to wear, check out Collar and Elbow and use the promo code Japanese Wrestling Classics. You will get uh, a percentage off of your order if you use the promo code Japanese Wrestling Classics. Uh, personally, the clothing, uh, the, the, the shirts feel real silky smooth. I must admit they're, they're great. They sent me a couple when they brought me on as a sponsor, as, as the sponsor of, as one of the sponsors on my show. Well, my only sponsor right now. Hopefully down the line I'll get some more. But, uh, their, their, their clothing feels great. And I, I seriously can't, uh, thank them enough and I can't, uh, recommend them enough to people. Uh, as far as local events in the area that I'd like uh, people to know about, we have the SST Wrestling hosted by the Fatu family. This is a benefit fundraiser. This is November 3rd in Elk Grove. Uh, look up SST Wrestling in Elk Grove on Facebook or on Google. Um, we have, you know, the whole Fatu family will be there uh, on um, Sam Fatu's side, the Tonga kid. His boys, Jacob and Journey, will be teaming up in the main event. Uh, check them out. It's a great fundraiser, and it's for local um, women's veterans and a local sober living home called the Joy House. So please, if you're in the area, definitely check it out. Tickets start at $10. We also have the Cow Palace coming up on a week after that on November 10th. Now, that show is going to be headlined by Ray Mysterio Jr. and Juventud Guerrera against Tenth of Ceremiedo and Phoenix, with uh, the semifinal being for the APW Championship, Jeff Cobb, who we heard earlier, defending the title against Jack Swagger. Uh, Battle Royal and so much more happening on that show. And then don't forget next year, if you're into Lucha Libre, um, they're going to be having an Expo Lucha at the Orleans Hotel. Uh, September 31st. September, what is August 31st and September, uh, oh, damn it, hold on, August 31st and September 1st at the Orleans Hotel. 
Uh, basically, it's going to be over 100 luchadors there, several exhibits like uh, Rey Mysterio costume and mask collection, uh, Christian Cement, the world's m most um, – he's got the biggest mask collection in the world. This is something – Really, everyone should be checking out if you're into Lucha. If you're into Puro, guys like Ultimo Dragon will be there. So far, there's 21 names on the list. They got like Conan, La Parca, the original one, Blue Demon, uh, Pirata Morgan, Willie Mack, Bestia Savaje, Demian 666. I'm not, not Bestia Savaje, Bestia 666, sorry. Uh, and, and, and so much more. Check out their website at www.expolucha.com, and I hope to see all of you there. And um, the next episode uh, will be a special treat. It's someone who recently made his first tour of Japan, but the guy is making a big name for himself in pro wrestling currently and is a aficionado and a student of the original um, style of All Japan from the 80s and 90s, who I'm very good friends with, who I'm going to bring on the show for a, an amazing interview. Anyways, everyone, thanks for listening, and I hope to, you'll be back next time for another amazing episode of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lush.